Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and it's time for a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally aired on November 25th, 2013. It is titled Sniffing Out Skunk Works Part 1 which I guess is a hint of what next week's classic episode is going to be. Skunk Works is a fun little catch-all phrase these days for secret R&D facilities within different companies, although it originally had a very specific designation. Let's listen in. It's people given the freedom Morals to work on or rules. ethics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. There's those black ops kind of things that like the X-Files really enjoys talking about. Yeah. So, But in the, it can be anything, right? Like we've got another episode that we just did, uh, the Google Loon, which really yeah. that's part of Google X, which in a way is kind of a skunk works for Google. It's top secret, super advanced research. Perhaps less top secret than the stuff that Lockheed Skunk Works has been working on because they tend to be working on contracts for the U.S. government. Yes. And, and specifically the military. Exactly. So we're talking about stuff that is, uh, at least on some level, meant to protect people, right? It's meant to te- protect hu- real human lives, and therefore secrecy is important to maintain that. Well, before we get into Skunk Works, we really need to just give a quick overview of Lockheed Martin. Now, Lockheed Martin as an entity is relatively recent. Right, but- past couple decades, but both Lockheed and Martin have existed since the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, 1912, August 16th. That's when Glenn L. Martin, who was a pilot and someone who would who built his own planes, uh, had his first flight back in 1909. But in 1912, that's when he formed the Glenn L. Martin Company in Los Angeles, and he was building planes there. On December 19th, 1912, two brothers, Alan and Malcolm Lockheed, uh, who also were in the process of building their own aircraft, although they wouldn't have their first flight until 1913, they founded the Alco Hydro Aeroplane Company, which later they decided to call the Lockheed Aircraft Company. Uh, and they were really specializing early on in building fast seaplanes that uh, established many speed and distance records for overwater flights. So uh, these guys all were at the very beginning. Cutting of, edge. Yeah. Of we're talking like airplanes had barely existed when these companies started. Making stuff not fall out of the sky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, so it's funny. I, like I was reading up on some of the engineers and I kept coming across names that I recognize like Donald Douglas and James Mc- McDonald, which anyone who's flown a lot starts to recognize these names because we have aircraft named after them. Mm-hmm. Um, and both companies were absolutely instrumental in in defining what the early airplane industry was. And also they were really instrumental in, in helping uh, the U.S. military get its place in in air combat. Oh, right. Without without the engineers who would come out of these companies, I don't think that we would have done as well in um, several of, of the wars that we've participated in over not, the years. Yeah, not to mention just commercial flight, because a lot of the uh, developments that we would have coming to the military flights would end up being used in commercial aspects. Now, when we talk about skunk works, we're mostly talking about military because it's really the top secret stuff. Uh, and we'll get more into that. Uh, before we get in, uh, get that far, we should talk about some other early stuff at Lockheed. For example, in 1930, Lockheed built a prototype two-seater pursuit aircraft fighter called the XP-900. 
and uh, the U.S. military ended up purchasing the prototype and redesignated it the YP-24, and eventually they ordered five Y-1P-24 fighters and four Y-1A-9 attack aircraft. Now, here's the fun thing about this podcast, y'all. Gonna be a lot of letters and numbers. It's it's pretty unavoidable. I, I I think that probably what's going to happen is Jonathan is going to read those out. I am going to say the nice nickname that someone has come up for these things, yeah. and then we will proceed to call it that nickname forever and ever and ever. Right. And I don't have a nickname for these, so I'm just calling him Bob. So <laughs> Bob was uh, never actually built. Because here's the thing: they, so the U.S. military had ordered uh, aircraft from Lockheed. But there was something else that happened right around 1930. A little thing called the Great Depression. Which, by the way, guys, wasn't so great. No, pretty, pretty crappy. No, it was a pretty crappy depression. It was huge. F minus would not, would not buy from again. No, no, yes. <laughs> Do not recommend. <laughs> um, yeah, so Great Depression um, obviously was a devastating economic, uh, uh, global economic disaster. Yeah, and Lockheed itself would go into bankruptcy. Yep. In 1932, they go into bankruptcy. Uh, they were only bankrupt for five whole days. And then, uh, uh, after that, a group of investors kind of swooped in and saved them, didn't it? Yep, yep. They poured enough money to keep the company going. But those five days, I mean, the fact that Lockheed had been struggling so for so long and then had finally gone into bankruptcy uh, had had done a lot of damage. And so that that plan to build those early aircraft for the military fell through. So that would not be the first aircraft order that Lockheed would really fulfill for for the military. But it wasn't too much longer. Uh, after that, that they would manage to do it. Um, 1937, uh, there was an important team led by Hal Hibbard and assisted by someone who will become incredibly important in this podcast. One Clarence Kelly Johnson. Yeah, and uh, they were designing a new type of fighter using twin engines called the XP-38, which eventually would be called the P-38 Lightning. And it is awesome. Uh, it's been called the most maneuverable and furthermore, the most beautiful plane in the Allied forces and in what would become the Allied forces yeah. in World War II. It was uh, if you've never seen a picture of this, you need to look for uh, the the P-38 Lightning. Uh, it is it is a particularly striking design. It's it's these kind of jets for kids who are my age. I'm going to show my age here in a second. <laughs> the kids my age who grew up uh, in the realm of G.I. Joe when that was a big cartoon on television. If you look at a lot of the vehicle designs from G.I. Joe, you can see a lot of it has has drawn inspiration from these early aircraft. These very classic things, right. Um, furthermore, it was an impressive feat for the time, capable of speeds of 400 miles per hour, which is about 640 kilometers per hour. Yeah, that's uh, pretty fast for the, for its time. Now, obviously, aircraft today leave that in the dust, but... Right, well, the, we're still talking about engines that use moving parts. Right, and, yeah, and not turbines. We're not, talking propellers. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah th these, this is before the jet era. So in 1938, Lockheed had the Model 14 Super Electra, which was a plane that ended up breaking the speed record for circling the globe. It only took three days, 19 hours and 14 minutes to get all the way around the Earth. And uh, yeah, and of course, it was piloted by a famous crazy guy. Right. Howard Hughes. Howard yeah. Hughes. It's got to be difficult piloting an Electra when you've got boxes on your hands and feet the whole time and... You know, especially if you don't want to upset the jars of urine that you have in the back. Howard Hughes was crazy, y'all. <laughs> I, I imagine he did not bring the jars with I, him. I actually think this I, was... I, I, I don't imagine that that was actually the same. I'm pretty sure that by 1938, he he wasn't quite uh, showing the the real symptoms of his 
a later kind of disturbing behavior. You know, he, he became a hermit, a recluse, but that was later on. Um, by 1938, I think he was still, you know, he pretty much had it together at that point. At any rate, in 1943, um, that's that's when we're going to really get started on these big military contracts. Right. Yeah, that's when the U.S. Army Air Corps, which was the predecessor for the United States Air Force, uh, decided to ask for a new jet fighter, and they they kind of put out the or word a jet fighter. Period. I mean, okay. The, the thing yeah. is, is that previously the the army had kind of rejected development of of these propellerless jet engines in the 30s because they didn't think it could be done until the Germans went and did it. Right, and then they said, "Well, you know what? Mistake. I guess we need some let's, of that. Uh, let's do some of those things." Yeah. So they they kind of put out the the request for a proposal, asking various companies to put forth their their uh, proposed solution to this and Lockheed wanted to throw its hat in the ring and they decided that the best way to to innovate quickly would be to create a special division within Lockheed that was not going to have to answer to the corporate level at the same kind of bureaucratic process that everyone else had to, right? And that would wind up being the the, the basis of the Skunk Works ideology for Forever yeah. until now, right? So originally it was called, you know, the official official name is the Lockheed Advanced Development Projects, and then later it was renamed officially to Advanced Development Programs (ADP). But its official nickname, which, like we said, it's it's trademarked, the, uh-huh. it's got a logo, is of course Skunk Works, and the logo, by the way. Is a skunk. It's it's the cutest little skunk that has ever adorned machines of war. Yeah, it's just about almost as cute as Flower from Bambi, but not quite, but close. And so you might wonder, why the heck would they be called Skunk Works? Where's that name come from? Okay, so the story goes that when, when this division was first started up, they, you know, it was wartime. Lockheed did not have any room on their main floors for this new division. So mm-hmm. they started up, uh, Mr. Clarence Kelly Johnson mm-hmm. um, bought a circus tent. Yeah. And set it up somewhere, like, I imagine in a parking lot on the property of this facility. Right. And um, and it happened to be next to a plastics manufacturing plant, which was really quite stinky. Yep. And so that stinky odor ended up completely saturating that circus tent, <laughs> making it a very smelly place. And, you know, but, but, but it was all very secretive. You know, all the projects that they were working on are really the one project, this jet engine project that they were working on. It couldn't be talked about. And so they were told when they answered phones to to not say what they were doing or give any kind of indication. And supposedly when one engineer answered a phone, he 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 made this joke. And and this joke is a little bit out of my reach personally, having never read the comic strip Little Abner. Um, this this is one of those newspaper comics from right. the time. Um, but apparently in in this comic strip, there was something called the Skonk Works. Yes, S K O N K. It was a a kind of a, a a playful misspelling of skunk because it it was a country, couple of country bumpkins who ran this um, this this. Uh, Still? Well, it's not even a still, really, because it wasn't moonshine they were making. They were making Kickapoo juice. And (laughs) Kickapoo juice was made out of pretty much anything they could get their hands on. And it was supposed to be the most... Up to and including skunks. Up to and including skunks, moose. The moose were very popular because they would say, oh, it lacks body. So they would go knock a body unconscious and throw it into the mix. And, uh, yeah, Kickapoo juice was supposed to be the most powerful um, alcohol and dog patch. 
Dogpatch, <laughs> by the way, is the location where Little oh. Abner takes place. So. Okay, all right. But but so, so so this engineer answered the phone like like hello, this is Skonkworks. Yeah, because it, it was stinky, yep. and it, and it stuck, and and eventually, um, I, I believe after the Little Abner lawyers gave them a call. They changed it officially to Skunk Works. Yeah. So but that would happen later. Yeah, that would happen later. <laughs> they uh, So they started trying to develop a, a jet plane uh, based around a jet engine that had that was not developed at Lockheed. In fact, it was uh, it was developed by the British. It was called the Goblin. Right. And um, uh, before they really got down to designing this. Uh, Kelly came out, Kelly Johnson came out and kind of, uh, laid down the law. He sort of came up with a, a philosophy. He was 33 years old at the time, which is just incredible to me. Yeah. It's a young man who comes up with 14 guiding principles, rules and practices are what they're called. And, uh, we're not going to re- read out all 14, but I've got six of them I would like to, to really point key out. ones. Yeah. 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 So they're, this pretty much is just kind of the overview of how Skunk Works business gets done in order for them to do it expediently at the quality they wanted. So number one was the Skunk Works manager must be delegated practically complete control of his program in all aspects. He should report to a division president or higher, meaning that Kelly wanted to make sure that he had the authority to make the decisions he needed to make in order to deliver upon these incredibly lucrative contracts. Right. And uh, and he felt that if he had to dance around all these corporate levels, it would slow things down and they would lose. So he said, we can't have that. So that's rule number one. Uh, we'll skip over a couple. But rule number three is the number of people having any connection with the project must be restricted in an almost vicious manner. Use a small number of good people, 10 to 25% compared to the so-called normal systems. So these are really small, nimble teams. And that was important for multiple reasons. One, again, he wanted to be able to move quickly. And the more voices you have, then, you know, you might have... uh, Dissent and... Right. And it just slows everything down. And also, because these projects were top secret, it's a lot easier to keep a secret if you keep the number of people who know it to a smaller to a minimum. number. Yeah. yeah. I tell you, you tell like 25 people a secret, that secret's going to get out eventually. But if you tell 2,500 people that secret, that secret, they might as well not even make the secret in the first place. That's why I don't tell anyone my secrets. Well, especially podcasters who can't trust us. Yeah, no, I, I'll tell you guys a secret. Number five is there must be a minimum number of reports required, but important work must be recorded thoroughly. Again, this was to cut down the bureaucratic approach. They didn't have to keep on making reports over and over, taking time away from actually doing the work. But he did say that it's important that we record what we do because accountability still has to be maintained. You can't just have no accountability whatsoever. That would be a disaster as well. Right. Number 12 there must be mutual trust between the military project organization and the contractor, the very close cooperation and liaison on a day-to-day basis. That This cuts down misunderstanding and correspondence to an absolute minimum. Again, cutting out all that interference. Number 13, access by outsiders to the project and its personnel must be strictly controlled by appropriate security measures. This would actually come into a really important story later on in Skunk Works where People who genuinely wanted to help were not allowed on the premises, and it ended up destroying a, uh, a project in the process. Yeah. Uh, number 14 is because only a few people will be used in engineering and most other areas, ways must be provided to reward good performances by pay, not based on the number of personnel supervised. I think this was Kelly's way of saying, I want to get my money, y'all. Yeah, Shakespeare got to get paid, yo. Yeah, because... Uh, you know, this is essentially saying I might have these really small teams that I've asked for, 
But don't base my pay on how many people I oversee. Base my pay on the results that we get. Which which we mostly include because we were a little bit entertained by by all of these like really important. I mean, these these kind of business structures have been used throughout corporate America right. and, and the world. Exactly. Since the inception of, of Skunk Works. But tacked on to the end, like, get dudes, yeah. paycheck, thanks. Yeah, which, you know, to, again, makes sense because it's, oh, sure. it's not just Kelly here. We're, we're poking fun at Kelly, but in, honestly, it referred to anyone who was a project leader, right? Right. Because, again, if your project is incredibly important, but it has fewer people on it than, say, a typical project in the main branch of Lockheed, you don't want that to count against you. So that was he was really looking out for his people. So even though we're making light of it, he was he was actually he was being very uh, thoughtful. Practical yeah, exactly. Thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, practicality was overall the the thing of this. That the mantra of the entire operation is is quick, quiet, and quality. Yep, he wants all three of those things. It has to be secret. It has to be done uh, on schedule, and it has to be uh, you know has to meet the the qualifications that the military laid out. In fact, that was another one of his rules was that. Let's be really clear about what the expectations are so that we can meet them and not waste time on things that are not important to whatever the expectations are. Uh, so, yeah, top secret operation. In fact, employees were not allowed to talk about what they were working on with anyone who wasn't on their project team. So even other people who were working in Skunk Works at the time, you were not allowed to talk about what it was you were working on if that person wasn't also on that project. Right. So um, this would carry over to one of the great testing facilities that would come into existence about a decade later. Uh, we'll mention it a couple of times, but it's one of my favorite subjects that I still am determined to do an episode on sometime in the future. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> the, it's almost as though we continually get prevented from doing it I know, by some kind of shadowy forces. It's almost like some gentlemen wearing black suits will occasionally show up outside of the offices of How Stuff Works and say, you really don't want to talk about that. Namely, Alex Trebek and Jesse Ventura. I'm not sure why. Sometimes Ben Bolin. And you think, like, (laughs) I thought he was on our side. But no, he's working for the man. Anyway, uh, so another thing that we can mention is that the secrecy went beyond just, you know, don't talk about it, right? They went so far as to start to disguise the buildings themselves. Right. Um, uh, Yeah, they they had decoy buildings, and they would cover some of them or all of them in in camouflage and netting and stuff like that. Yeah, because, you know, Pearl Harbor demonstrated the value of being able to hide potential high-value targets. And right. you know, they were going to be working on super-secret projects for the military, so they, they considered themselves a potential target. So this was really kind of a practical approach to trying to minimize uh, that the chance that they would be hit by some enemy aircraft carrying bombs. So uh, they actually went to great pains to, to disguise their campus. Now, the very first jet that they started working on, the one that had that goblin jet engine from the British, was uh, designated the XP-80 Jet Fighter. Uh, So the team started work on that in 1943, four months before they were officially awarded the contract for the, the project. And it would turn out that this apparently was sort of... Sort of how they worked. Yeah. Essentially, the military would say, hey, you know what? We sure could use a, a an aircraft that does this, this, and this. And the, the Skunk Works would say, we could do that we'll for you. We can yeah, do. you know, we might whip something up. They shake hands, and then Skunk Works goes out and pours a lot of time, money, and effort into developing it. And then months later, the contract comes through. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, with, with the understanding that eventually the money would come. And, I, you know, this was partially due to the, or largely, I think, due to the, the cleverness and machinations of, of Kelly Johnson, because mm-hmm. he... Uh, he also instated himself as the 
only person who would get to talk to Air Force officers and CIA agents. Um, yeah, you, there's a great so, story. So everything comes through him, which, you know, which really streamlines the process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You had that. And sets that, him up as a, as a reliable. He was the central voice. Right. I mean, it, it meant that you weren't going to get mixed messages because everything was going through one source. I also have a, a fun little thing I can talk about in a little bit about um, <laughs> about what it was like to go along with Kelly on one of these meetings with the CIA. <laughs> I've, uh, I've heard him referred to as like W.C. Fields without the sense of humor. Yeah. In this case, it was more about the links they went to to try and prevent <laughs> uh. being overheard, which I thought was amusing. Jonathan from 2020 here, breaking in to say we're going to be back at Skunkworks in just a second, but first let's take a quick break. All right, so 1943, they got that contract. 1944, they deliver the XP-80 Lulu Bell prototype jet fighter. Uh, this was only 143 days after that kind of handshake deal had occurred. It, it yep. was just under five months and a little bit earlier than planned. Yeah, by a full week. They delivered it a <laughs> week ahead of schedule. Uh, and the jet fighter would eventually become known as the Lockheed P-80 Shooting Star. And that was the very first jet fighter used by the U.S. Army Air Forces. So some of the bombers that were operating in, in Europe during the tail end of World War II absolutely um, were, were helped out by the creation of this vehicle. Right. It's just that they weren't uh, designed to do actual military work yet. Like they couldn't fly a, a combat mission. They weren't outfitted for that. Right. Uh, and it wouldn't happen until after the conclusion of World War II. They, they would be used later in the Korean War. Yes. Uh, so you might wonder why it looks like, well, it's a single seater. Single seater jet. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple, like a basic jet design. That if if you can imagine what a fighter jet looks like, it looks like a small version of that. <laughs> That's what it was. Uh, by 1948, so a little, you know, four years later, they developed the T-33 T-Bird, which is also known as the T-33 Shooting Star, which is mostly used, at least in the United States, was mostly used as a training aircraft. It was meant to get pilots who had had experience with propeller. Uh, aircraft to Used actually get to the jet aircraft. Train. Right. This was a brand new way of flying, and very few people had any expertise in it, apart from those crazy test pilots who lived on adrenaline and are a totally different species, as far as I'm concerned. I am an adrenaline junkie <laughs> myself, but I cannot imagine living that lifestyle where you're like, what? Are, you're strapping me into this thing? Goes. You know, twice the speed of of sound. Let's do it. Like, no, yeah, that, that does not sound like, safe at like all. Roller coaster adrenaline is great. Yeah, it's actual death adrenaline. No, that's a little more than I can not. handle. But uh, yeah, so the first flight was piloted by uh, Tony Levere, who would end up piloting lots of different test aircraft for Lockheed, um, and it remained in service for a long time in the United States as training aircraft. In a few parts of the world, it's still used as training aircraft, and a few places even weaponized it, making it a combat aircraft, which was never used in the United States for that purpose. It was mainly there just as a training vehicle, but some places in the world have purchased T-33s and used them for uh, for combat jets. They yeah. they are they are slightly overmatched, I would say, by most <laughs> modern jets, but uh. But but still, I mean, a solid piece of machinery. Um, yep. it, it was a little bit longer than the uh, T than the than the P eighty P eighty right. Yeah, and uh, had a second seat. Right, which makes sense because it was used for training. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a second seat with instrumentation and controls. So kind of like you know, if you've ever taken one of those driving courses where the car has two sets of uh, brakes, brakes, at least. and 
Yeah, maybe even two Emergency steering wheels. Yeah. yeah. So in that case, it's kind of similar. So, uh, you know, it, it, like I said, it was used, still used in some parts of the world, mostly for training. Uh, 1950, they came out with the F-94, which, which was, was called, also developed. I called the Starfire. There you right, go. Right. It was, it was yeah. also developed off of the T-33, though. Yes, that's right. And it was meant to be faster and more maneuverable than the P-80. Turned out it was not. Uh, <laughs> that, that was the intent. It did not quite turn out that way, but it was uh, meant to kind of match against Soviet aircraft. At this time, we're getting into the, 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 the Cold War. And so you had this escalation on both sides of the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States, building all sorts of things. I mean, this would also be what fueled the space race uh, shortly after this time period we're talking about right now. So they wanted to have something that was a little more capable of going up against Soviet aircraft, which tended to be smaller, less complex, and far faster and more maneuverable than the United States version. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea. It was a um, it was a twin-seater aircraft and uh, supposedly had very powerful instrumentation, including radar, that would allow them to uh, detect potential targets from quite a far way away. In fact, it was so sensitive and so advanced that the United States government did not really want pilots flying the F-94 yeah, over they, enemy territory. They placed restrictions to make sure that it, the technology wouldn't fall into enemy hands. Yeah, which would come in, you know, it turns out that's an important consideration because, as we'll see with some later aircraft, uh, there were instances where certain aircraft were shot down and there was a, a real worry that that technology was now going to fall into enemy hands and that any advantage the United States might have had would be lost as a result. So that's why they were very careful about where it could fly. It, it did enter combat in the Korean War. Uh, there's a site called Military Factory that has a great article about the Starfire and said that it just didn't outperform the P-80 when it came to combat situations, but it was able to... Uh, inner combat with aircraft at night because that radar was so sensitive that the crew aboard the Starfire could navigate and find targets and fire upon them just using the instrumentation, wow. not, not using visuals. So that's pretty amazing. And they, they called it a stopgap aircraft. Like the idea was that until we can develop something better, this is what we're going to use in the interim. And by the late 1950s, it gets phased out. Now that brings us up to an interesting test vehicle uh, in 1951, the X-7 Kingfisher. So this test vehicle is different from other test vehicles. This was not a this was not really a vehicle so much as an aircraft. It was um, it was not meant to carry people at all. What it was meant to do was to mimic a uh, a missile. It essentially was a missile, but without any kind of payload. So right. the idea was that they would launch one of these from like a B-29 or a B-50. And it would go into ramjet operation. Uh, right. It, a ramjet being a type of engine that doesn't use moving parts. It takes in air at, um, in, in this case, subsonic speeds. And then using the pressure of, of the motion of the aircraft, mm-hmm. um, it compresses that air to create combustion. Um, hence that missile-like design. I mean, the, the entire body of the aircraft is, is essentially an airflow device. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, one of these days we're going to have to do like a full episode about Jet engines, ramjet engines. Talk about the differences and why, uh, you know, some are are subsonic, some are supersonic, some are hypersonic. But uh, that that's such a huge topic to really get into that. It would we this uh, this series would go like five episodes. So <laughs> no, I'd love to though. That's a, it's yeah, it's this, some, this something for us to look to me. So the yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. And so the, what was funny about this thing was it was all meant to 
allow the United States to test anti-missile systems, right? It was to give a target that anti-missile systems could aim at and fire at in an attempt to bring it down safely without having an actual missile with an actual payload flying around. Um, it also had a very long nose that ended in a like a needle-like projection, uh, the idea being that when it was when its fuel was spent, it would uh, parachute down and the needle would, in, would would land nose down in the desert and, and that that would kind of cushion in a way. Yeah, it's, it's it would fall. It's like kind of like a dart falling yeah. into the dirt. Yeah. Like and the idea being that it, it would suspend itself, you know, from this needle and therefore the fins on this thing wouldn't get damaged in the fall. And it turned out that uh, that was handy because uh, it was hardly ever shot down. <laughs> uh, that was the problem was that apparently the Kingfisher was a bit too good at what it did. And it was um, so fast and agile that anti-missile systems didn't hit it that frequently. It was very few hits that were scored in the program overall. And because that doesn't look so good to the military, like, well, our anti-missile systems are, are terrible. That's not a that's not a fun thing to say. Oh, right? right. It wound up being a little bit of an embarrassment, I think. Yeah. So they scrapped the program because obviously that's the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> like our missiles can't hit this thing. Let's scrap it. Let's redefine the rules so that we can we can win. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think that's I mean, I'm not a military expert. I just don't think that's how winning works. I, I, I think that really the issue is that it was the incorrect technology for the project for for for, for its purpose. We'll return to Sniffing Out Skunkworks Part 1 in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. So 1954, there's, I'm just going to mention this briefly because it will come uh, into play. We're actually doing this in two parts, this, this uh, show about Lockheed. And so this is part, the first part, but uh, this is going to come into play in the second part. In 1954, Lockheed develops the XC-130. Hercules. Yep. Which was a four-engine turboprop aircraft used in military transport. Now, the original Hercules... There wasn't that much innovative about it, other than the fact that it could carry a lot of stuff. It was a, an enormous cargo plane. But there's some stuff that they add to it a couple of decades later that make it pretty um, terrifying. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. So 19, the, also in 1954, they developed the F-104. Starfighter. Yeah. So um, th- now I'm starting to think of, like, Transformers at this point. <laughs> And so I know it's Starscream and Transformers. Don't write to me. I know it's Starscream. I'm just saying. It's starting to get get that feel. So Starfighter uh, is a single-engine supersonic interceptor. And an, uh, you, all right, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, no, no. I was just going to say that, it, that this was it was the first Mach 2 aircraft, which means it travels at speeds of 1,500 miles per hour or about 2,450 kilometers per hour. Pretty fast. Uh, it's also, you know, it was specifically designed to go into battle against Soviet MiGs. At least if ever we were to go into combat with the Soviet Union, the MiGs, right. the MiGs were incredibly, uh, maneuverable. So this was sort of our answer to the Soviet MiGs aircraft. Um, and, uh, you know, an interceptor, that's what an interceptor is, in case you're wondering, is a specific kind of jet fighter that's designed to do air to air combat. So not just, other fighters, but also bombers and other types of aircraft. So uh, it's a specific type of jet fighter. It wasn't really designed to have any kind of ground operation, so you wouldn't be using this to fire against ground forces necessarily. Um, it has a really weird look to it. It's very long, 
and the wings look pretty stubby compared to the body of the jet. So it just it looks like a rocket with some fins stuck to the side and a cockpit in it, and there's a person in there. The, the, this is this is going to be another one of those um, uh, ramjet based engines. So. Yeah. And uh, it was operated mainly by the Air Force and the Air National Guard. And uh, NASA had a few because they wanted to use them for supersonic test flights because they had this crazy idea about sending people up into outer space. What? I know. And it turns out that if you want to make sure that your human beings can survive the trip, you might want to do some supersonic tests first because you're going to be going pretty fast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was really important there. And about 2,500, actually more than 2,500 were produced Overall, but only 738 of those were made by Lockheed. Everything else was licensed to other manufacturers. Right. They would be retired by the mid-1970s, but would continue, or by the U.S. anyway, but yeah. would continue to serve in various air forces until about 2004-ish. Yep, yep. And uh, the the way this whole program started was Kelly went to Korea and started talking to U.S. pilots and said, okay, what is it that you need? In order yeah, what to, do you want? Yeah, what, what, if you could build your own aircraft, what what would you want? And, and they it? said, we want it less complex, smaller, and faster. <laughs> and essentially, they were saying, Shocking. you know those Soviet MiGs that they have? We want those. <laughs> so that was kind of the idea that uh, that fed into the development of the Starfighter. The thing that weirds me out about this craft is that it had this it had this downward-facing ejection seat. Right. So rather than than, than popping up and away, and yeah. and I understand that probably, I, I've, I've read that it was something about the, the shape of the tail or the yeah. height of the tail mm-hmm. that might have made clearance difficult. Exactly. But nonetheless, sending me screaming straight downwards out of a plane just yeah. sounds like... And, and not dropped, right? Shot. Shot. Yeah, because you are in an you ejector seat. Ejected. Yeah, you, you, because your jet may be in danger of exploding, so you have to have these explosive charges that project your, your seat in a particular direction. In this case, that direction was straight down. So you would the, the bottom of the jet would open up and you would be shot down in your ejector seat to clear the plane. Yeah, and I am, strangely enough, not the only person who found this kind of weird. Uh, the Germans had a really interesting nickname for it. Uh, yeah, that nickname would be Witwenmacher. Which means the Widowmaker. Yes, the Widowmaker. They said that uh, it was an incredibly dangerous aircraft and that... Uh, that there were that you were more likely to have a a malfunction or some other kind of accident in it in operation rather than ever getting shot down in combat that it was just a unreliable aircraft and that there were some big big problems with it Germany was not the only country to say that <laughs> right uh, there were other countries that said that something like fifty percent of their aircraft uh, they they lost fifty percent of all the ones they had due to operational accidents. Oh wow! Yeah. Um. Not, nonetheless, it would win a Collier Trophy in 1958, which is an award presented annually by the National Aeronautic Association for achievement in either aeronautics or um, astronautics. Yeah. And it's it's a pretty big deal. Lockheed Martin would win six of these over the mm-hmm. course of their tenure, um, up up until today. But you know, it, it, so it was a Big important craft. Yeah, and in court, it, a little bit shoddy. Yeah, it all depended on <laughs> whom you asked, right? There were some who said the Starfighter was a, an inherently dangerous vehicle that was poorly constructed, and in fact alleged that Lockheed had bribed officials in order to win the contract to make oh, this wow. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there were other places that said, no, we've never lost an, a single aircraft due to some sort of operational error. So it all depended on you know who was doing the flying, I guess. Uh, so it certainly is controversial. Uh, then there's the uh, the, the RB sixty nine. That's the ne- Neptune. Yeah. Now here's the crazy thing about the Neptune. There are two different types of Neptunes. Okay. 
So the U.S. Navy has Neptunes, and these Neptunes are maritime uh, uh, surveillance—not even surveillance. They they just they just uh, they monitor and fly over oceans, it's looking a, it's at a patrol vehicle. Yeah, it's just patrol, right? Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Um, so it's not necessarily like a heavy combat type thing. It just it does these patrols. Mm-hmm. Well, this this Neptune was designed to look <laughs> like the Navy's Neptune, but instead of being operated by the Navy, they were operated by the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency in the United States. I just want to take a moment to say thank you to all the men and women in the CIA who always try very hard to keep us safe. And uh, I promise I'll be good. <laughs> So the CIA is obviously one of those uh, organizations known for being super secret. I mean, that's one of the, it's that's like, their job. That is literally their job. Yeah, the, the espionage is high up there. They are all about material surveillance, which means like direct surveillance, whereas the NSA, the National Security Agency, which we've talked about before, is mm-hmm. all about uh, electronic surveillance and signal surveillance. So CIA... Uh, they wanted to have the opportunity to do some surveillance missions with aircraft. And, uh, there, and there, were, were, there were so many of these of these Navy Neptunes in use that they were like, you know, if we just built something that looks like a Navy Neptune, people will be it's it's like a you know, it's it's, it's a Navy. Fl- it's right. a Navy aircraft. Yeah, it's like, it's like a say, Corolla. It's everywhere. Right. Like, no one's going to pay any attention. Yeah, to well, that. It, we're perfectly fine. We, we can hide in plain sight. Uh, the Navy said, hey, hang on there, buddy. If one of those planes is shot down, that means you're going to blame us, the U.S. Navy, because you're not going to come forward and say that was our plane and the sea. He said, "Yup," and the Navy said, "No, you you can't. No, you can't thanks. paint your planes to look that. like our planes." No thanks. So they they look like from a from a just a, a, a from a body standpoint. Yeah, they look identical. Mm-hmm. They are identical to these other and the other types are designated P two V seven Neptunes. That's the Navy's aircraft. Right. The CIA is the RB sixty nine. So they uh, look. From a superficial level, identical. Although each of those seven planes that was built, that were built for the CIA by hand, by looks, hand, looks different and is outfitted with different equipment yeah, for they different could, missions. They could do different things. Like one of the things they would occasionally do is drop leaflets onto countries to try and promote, you know, resistance propaganda. and propaganda. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the, you know, it wasn't always some sort of actual direct combat issue. So. uh <laughs> there were a couple that had some Sidewinder missiles, so there were a couple that were ready for combat if it was necessary. But none of them ever entered combat, I believe. Well, some of them were shot down, but none of them, I think, entered, <laughs> went into a combat mission. Yeah, out of the seven that were built for the CIA, five of them have been lost. Either shot down or we don't know, or at least... It's we not, don't know. We don't know. Jonathan there's, and I don't know. Yeah. No one has told us. Yeah, there's no public information about what happened. Like one of them disappeared over China, for example, and there's no information that is publicly available about the fate of that aircraft. Although actually, technically, the fate of the other two is not known to the public as well, is it? Right. The two the two surviving ones, we don't know where they are. <laughs> we, they could be doing anything right now. I think they're with Ben Bolin and Alex Trebek. Yeah, probably. Those men in black have to get around somehow, right? So we don't know what those two surviving aircraft are doing, but we have our suspicions. Uh, 1955. Now, here's where we're going to end, because this is also a big, big year for Lockheed Skunk Works and for the spy industry in the United States, surveillance, reconnaissance. This is when Lockheed built the U-2A Angel, or the U-2, the first U-2 plane. So... Mm -hmm. 
Tech Stuff has done a full episode about the U-2 spy plane. So if you want to hear all about it, I recommend you go back. Yeah, go listen to that. That was uh, published on March 19th, 2012, and was called Tech Stuff Spies on the U-2. Yeah, so, so we've got a lot more information about the entire process of developing the U-2 as well as uh, some of the other aircraft that we will be talking about in our next episode. But, but this was big. It was a joint operation between the CIA, the Air Force, and, and Lockheed, of course. Right. So because it was CIA, it was uh, it was called a black operation, meaning it was ultra secret. And the reason why the CIA got involved, well, the United States, you know, the president kind of wanted to have these spy planes. But... Congress could oversee the budgets. The, the, the Air Force. Yeah, the budget for the Air Force. So Congress is like scrutinizing all the money that's going through to the military. And the president says, you know, I'd really like to be able to build these planes, but I can't do it through Congress because they're not going to play ball. What if I had the CIA, the secret agency, who the governance of which is a mystery to almost everybody, apart from the people who are actually running things, stuff they don't want you to know, um... How about we have them build it instead? So it falls under the CIA's budget, which was classified. People in Congress could not see what the money went to. They knew that money was going to the CIA, but they had no idea where it was going beyond that. Mm-hmm. Only only a small number of government officials knew anything about the project at the time. Right. So uh, that project being the development of the U-2 plane, which is a, an incredible aircraft. It's still in service today. Um, there's still quite a few in the fleet, and uh, essentially what it does is it flies at really high altitudes. Like uh, 70,000 feet? 70,000 feet, 21,000 meters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 21 kilometers. That's uh, uh, that's almost twice the, the, the operating, the, the normal jet engine, like a passenger jet, en- right, jet right. engine, goes ever, up to about 35,000. That's about right, yeah. So it's about twice as uh, high as any of those. And uh, the idea was that at that Altitude, the U-2 could fly over radar and not be detected. It also would be out of reach of any air, uh, ground-to-air missiles or fighters. So in other words, they could just stay up out of reach and spy on whoever they wanted, and then there would be no repercussions, at least directly to that aircraft, for the time being. That concludes our first part of a two-part episode about Skunk Works. We will return next week to conclude that two-parter. Skunk Works, in general, is one of those things that I could do probably half a dozen episodes about uh, and not even scratch the surface. But if you guys have suggestions for things I should cover in tech stuff, whether it's related to secret R&D projects or not, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 